You're listening to Make the Game with Matt Hackett. All right. Welcome to Make the Game. My name is Matt Hackett. So uh, the first episode, thanks for listening, by the way. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, the episode about career development and where to, where to find all your career knowledge. It was pretty scripted, and I think I sounded a little bit stiff, which, you know, makes sense. I kind of overthought that one. I've, been, I've had this podcast in the back of my mind for years, um, you know, so makes sense. But uh, this one, I'm, I'm doing a different way. There's no script. It's um, This is a topic I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. I think it has lots of value. Um, I think there's some great takeaways from this, so I hope this is a good chat. But uh, I'm coming in kind of unprepared. I have some note cards, but... I've kind of written about this idea, I just haven't published it. So, here it is. Saturation in game design. Um, And I think it can be applicable to almost anything, right? Like product design too. But, um, so, and this might be a term that, you know, other books have covered. I've I've read a bunch of game design books, you know, but I don't have, um, you know, classical knowledge. I didn't go to school for game education or anything. So, you know, maybe it exists. Feel free to let me know. (laughs) This is already a thing, and people call it something else. But um, you know, you kind of invent your own language. Like Jeff and I, you know, from Lost Cast, we chat all the time and kind of throw terms at each other just to keep our language on the same page, so we're not just repeating, you know, the definitions of those terms. So um, saturation comes up, and let, let's talk about this real quick. <clears throat> so saturation as perter- pertains to game design. Picture picture in your mind a chessboard, right? I think chess is a good or, or checkers if it's simpler, but, you know, a, a game that everybody knows for the most part, we're all pretty familiar with. So I'm going to use chess. Um, an 8x8 eight eight board, right? You have a grid, a very simple, straightforward matrix, right? 64 tiles. You have, um, what is it, 16 pieces per player, right? 8 pawns, 8 more complicated pieces. Um, there are rules in chess, such as no more than one piece can occupy any cell at a given time, right? You can't have a two pawns in the same tile. There's piece behavior, which is uh, how they can move, ranging from very simple, like, you know, a pawn can move one piece, uh, one tile forward, and that's it, um, except for the first move where it can move two, and then it attacks uh, diagonally. So pawn's pretty uh, complicated, right? Especially when compared to, say, like a... a, a which one is that? Rook. Uh, one of my favorite pieces. Uh, if you're not familiar with chess, um, Rook can move up, down, left, right, as far as they want. Rook is like, if you think about it programmatically, you know, writing the code to support chess. Rook is among one of the simplest ones. Um, if you have a chess game, you have the ability to add and remove pieces to this chess game, right? Um, and chess also has a rule where you can modify the pieces. You can turn a pawn into a queen if your pawn makes it all the way to the other side of the board. So these are pretty much the features that chess has, right? On your turn, you move a piece, and you can choose to move any piece that you want of yours with certain rules. Chess is a little more complicated, like you can't make certain moves if it'll put you in check and things like that, but that's pretty much the entire capability of chess. There's some more complication in there. If you're actually going to be, you know, programming the game, you're going to need things like animation and, and yada yada, right? But like, it's not like a, you know, a turn-based strategy RPG where each piece has a lot of state, you know, and complication. Um, chess is a really simple game. So let's get into saturation here. I really love looking at a design in this way where, so for saturation, you want to look and see 
what all capabilities the game design has, as we've discussed with chess. Then you want to look at it and see what all can it already do that it's not taking advantage of, right? So this is not adding new features or capabilities to the engine. This is looking at the things that it can do today and seeing if they are leveraged. And you can almost picture like a spreadsheet. You could make one. I've done this before, you know, for some of my games. I'd make a spreadsheet and then you talk about it. You know, you list out features under the columns. And for this, this might be like, you know, piece type, you know, board size. You could, have, you know, why couldn't you have a 10 by 10 board in chess? You totally could. Um, stuff like that. So when we look at this list here, one thing we can see is that pieces are added at the beginning of the game. Pieces are removed throughout the game. And pieces very seldomly are modified, like in the case with the pawn upgrading to the queen. So, you know, chess is a perfect game. Probably shouldn't be messed with too much, although, you know, um, some indies uh, and others have, have messed with the design. What is that one? Battle chess or... Uh, there's some pretty crazy ones out there. I'll, I'll put some in the show notes if I can... I think I'm going to make a little note here. Cool chess games. I should play some too. Um, but, like, if you want to make your own game, it's really useful to look at this. So chess doesn't really add pieces, right? And in a lot of my favorite strategy RPGs, um, pieces are added all the time, right? Like a monster spawn. There might be a wizard that summons a dragon. Um, you might create a firewall, you know, that stays in the world and damages your enemy. You know, you're adding new entities to your simulation, you know, that's one way of looking at it, right? For the chessboard, it would be adding pieces to your board. But, you know, in default chess, there's no way to, like, create a new pawn, even though you might want one. So that's kind of what saturation is about, is designing, looking at a design, seeing what it does, and seeing what it could do, and listing that stuff out. Um, some of my favorite examples of saturation are uh, a double jump. Double jump is a great example because, you know, if, if you're playing a platformer game, it's probably got to jump, right? And for most of the games, the default starting point is you can jump. But uh, for some games, you begin with a double jump. Some games, you can get an upgradable double jump, which is my preference. Some games, you can just straight up fly forever. Some games, you get a, a jetpack. But those are all, you know, for the most part, variations of the exact same mechanic, just the jump. You know, programmatically, if you were coding up the support for that in a platformer, you can totally imagine how you might have like a jump count. Jump count equals one. That's how it starts, right? And oh, you got the double jump upgrade. Now uh, jump count equals two. And then, you know, for a jetpack, oh, now your jump count is, you know, infinity. And there's a whole other system tacked on. Perhaps your jump, uh, your jetpack has like gas, like a resource of so can only be used a limited amount. Or maybe you can just fly forever. Um, the game, I think it's just pronounced V, but you know, the, uh, V, 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 that classic Atari looking, uh, platformer. <clears throat> so you reverse the gravity in that one, which to me is another great example of saturation because, um, in just about any platformer, you could flip the gravity and they all, like all these platformers we play do this already. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're maybe the code isn't set up in all of them. You know, you could ask a, a senior programmer on that project to be like, hey, can we flip the gravity? They might, oh, jeez, that would be, no, that's so hard. You know, like there's always some systems that get tied up and sometimes a decision that was made early on prevent you from easily making tweaks. But 
Um, other times, like in a lot of the games I've worked on, it is literally like a property. You could just smack onto an individual entity to be like, hey, my gravity is flipped. Um, or, and or even, right? You could have a global um, gravity amount, which is like, hey, it's one by normal, and by default, it shoves you down, switch it to minus one, you go flying up in the air. Um, so those are examples of, um, of saturation to me. So let's talk about the benefits, because that's, that's one of the things this podcast is about, right? For you, for you Lost Cast listeners, um, you know, Jeff and I, just, a, just some fun chat times. I didn't always know where it was going. This time, I'm here to deliver you the benefits. Um, I, I will try not to bring stuff up unless I think that it can uh, help you make games. So let's talk about that. So why do I like saturation? Why have I... It's been kind of hard to, like, formulate it. I was going to blog about it. I have a draft written and everything. Um, but why do I like it so much? Why has it been on my mind? <clears throat> So, saturation can find you some unexpected hooks, which, if you're not familiar, a hook is uh, what makes your game stand out. It's kind of really important in the crowded marketplace today if you're interested in selling your game. One of my favorite examples of um, what I think is kind of a saturation exploration that resulted in an interesting hook is a game I'm going to be talking about a lot, so you better... If you don't know it, you should at least go watch a trailer for it. It's uh, Into the Breach. Um, this is by Subset Games, who also made... Um, I, I almost said FML. No, uh, FTL. Uh, FTL, the classic kind of like, uh, I don't know, space battle exploration game, um, which is really good. Into the Breach, though, is, is kind of in my wheelhouse because um, next I'm going to be talking about Shining Force, as, as I do, but... Uh, you know, strategy RPG type of, of gameplay. Um, Into the Breach plays a lot like chess, actually. Like, the, the boards are actually 8x8, eight eight and you have a small number of units. It's not one of these giant, um, you know, there aren't 100 units to worry about. So, um, I will post a link to uh, this if I can find it. But, subs, man, subset games. Uh, look them up sometime. Watch their talks. Woo, I'll put some links in there. They are good. Um, I'll put a link to the talk if I can find it specifically. But they were talking about... Uh, they spent years in the exploration phase trying to like find what was fun about their um, turn-based tactics prototype, right? And they had a bunch of different enemy units they were playing with, and one of them, uh, just the one, right? They didn't bake this into the whole design. One of them would telegraph what it was going to do the next turn. You could see, oh, hey, that insect is going to you know, knock that building down. I'd better prevent that now. And the other insects, I guess, didn't have that. And I'm sure they had behaviors they were going to do, but it wasn't. Um, you know, brought up to the player and, and shown to you with user interface and stuff. So um, <clears throat> they put that in the game and they loved it. And then they smartly saw how good it was and doubled down on that. And now that's the whole game's premise, pretty much. That's one of the things that makes this the game so good. It's one of those games where you stare at your board for, like, I, I will sometimes stare at it for 15, 20 minutes. And, you know, I'm moving pieces around a little bit and trying to see what might work, but... You can see what the enemy's gonna do, and sometimes um, it's so agonizing because you just like, oh, I can I can stop that one and that one, but then that third one is gonna get that building. It's so good, and like most of the goodness from that game comes around that core thing, which is that one of the enemies um, telegraphed, and so they were like, let's make them all do that. Um, and you know, with saturation, you could look at that too as. Uh, with the gravity stuff, right? Like, so in Spelunky, I'm going to be talking about Spelunky all the time, get ready. Um, there are some enemies who reverse their own gravity, right? 
so you know they like that that could be how uh the core mechanic for V was discovered. So um, that's one of the benefits it gives you. Is it can find cool hooks for you that set your game apart. Another one is, is provide new content, right? Like um, subset designers could have had that one enemy and decided that that would make a cool boss feature, right? As they're kind of saturating the design and seeing what all it's capable of doing and trying to remix those capabilities into something cool. Um, they could have landed on a boss, and then Spelunky, the example, is the gravity. It's a, it's a couple different enemies um, that use that. What's nice about Saturation 2 is that a lot of times involves low-hanging fruit, right? Which, like, I think if you're indie like me, especially if you're solo dev like me, um, the low-hanging fruit's really important, especially when it's like, whoa, my engine already does this, right? So, like, I'm, I'm just going to create the content now. And a lot of times you don't know, like, oh, I need some new monsters or a new puzzle, and you don't know what to build, right? But if you explore the saturation, you could see some things that, that just kind of reveals itself to you. It's like, you know, you're an archaeologist uncovering a, you know, a little bone. You know, oh, cool. And then it gives you a whole thing you can explore and discover the whole skeleton. Um, here's a cool one. Is um, sometimes there are features you're not aware of that your game does that you don't really think of as saturation properties that you could change. So here's an example is, um, let's say you have like a roguelike or, or any game, but um, there's a monster coming after you, right? Pretty standard thing. They start pathing towards you or just chasing you, whatever. Um, you might not look at that as like, there's a bunch of opportunity there to, to flip a switch or something, but there totally is. Um, one of my favorite things is um, when you have, say like your AI has a team. So instead of specifically being like, you know, my AI is I look for the player and I chase the player and I punch the player in the face. It's more, um, I have a team and the player is on that team and I hate that team. But then you could say cast a spell on the enemy and switch its team. And now your enemy goes and fights for you. Like, how cool is that, right? Um, and this is not a new concept. Like the Doom games did this. You could get monsters to fight against each other. The original Rogue did this, I'm sure. But, you know, sometimes we forget and like, <clears throat> it's really easy to see. Let's say you've got a hit point bar or a health bar on one of your units in your game, you can easily see like, oh, well, there's some saturation. I could have a an enemy with no health, an enemy with one health, an enemy with 100 health, and an enemy with infinite health. You can just can totally saturate that feature. Other ways to saturate health, you could have um, damage over time, healing over time, a shield component that, that you know, blocks the damage before it hits your health. Um, all kinds of ways to saturate that, all kinds of cool ways you could find new game designs in your in your game design. Um, so, okay, and this last bit, uh, before I start to finish up, um, I wanna talk about Shining Force because uh, it's one of my top three favorite games of all time. It means a lot to me. Um, it's a lot like chess, honestly, right? Like if you, if, you had, if you had a chess game engine and you wanted to make Shining Force, you totally could. You'd have to do a lot of work around, like, you know, RPG mechanics and whatnot, health, hit points, roll some dice under the hood, that kind of a thing. But, so, um, I'm sure we've talked about this on, on other podcasts before, like Lost Cast, but um, uh, Jeff and I have lamented before about how, like, um, Shining Force is a game that didn't do... It wasn't thoroughly saturated, right? Like, none of your units could really do anything that special. They all had the real easy, low-hanging fruit things of, like, well, this one can fly over mountains, and this one can move one extra tile, and that one has a fire spell, which is exactly like the ice spell, you know? 
a bunch of uninteresting things like that. And, you know, we lamented how like, man, why didn't those games have like, I want to be able to put down an ice wall that stays there for three tiles, or I want to be able to like, you know, hit an enemy and it gets knocked back two tiles and it knocks it into the water and it dies. And, um, you know, the ability to manipulate the world and the, and to have cooler abilities than just like a spell that does the same thing or has a bigger radius, you know? Um, and I had a thought, which kind of explains to me why they didn't do this, perhaps. is for, I mean, for one, limitations back then on the second Genesis were probably unbelievable, but... Um, Shining Force is a game that is a, so it's a role-playing game. It's a kind of a JRPG strategy RPG type of thing. Um, you, you have like base 10 hit points or so you start with around 10 hit points. You end up with maybe a maximum of like a hundred or so. Um, the maps are all hand curated. There's eight chapters and like each map is really just like a big, you know, here's your enemies and go fight them. But there are lots of, um, triggers and cut events, uh, where like, you know, once you walk past a certain point in the map, some new monsters will spawn, or um, when you reach a certain place, uh, an earthquake will happen and cut off your access to to going to the left, or something like that happens once in a while, right? And the thing is, is you know, when we think about, like, I, I feel like I live a lot of my life at the intersection between programming and design, and so a lot of times the design that I want is like pushed back on by the programming that is capable. And in this case of Shining Force, you know if you could put down a tile that didn't let a monster walk a certain way or something, or if you had an attack that pushed back a boss and two tiles and knocked them somewhere that the game didn't expect them to be. I mean, when you think about the repercussions of the bugs, the, the crashes, the, the Q and a nightmares, um, then you kind of start to understand why certain things probably weren't done. You know, I wasn't there. I didn't work on these games, but you know, with a, with a career built around games now, I, I can't help but look at things with these certain lights where I kind of understand, like, ah, oh, okay. And uh, I think the lesson there, though, like, looking for benefits again, the thought that this leads to is that when you're exploring saturation, you'll find some cool stuff, and I hope you'll find some cool hooks and some things you want to keep in your game, at least, if not your whole hook for your game, then at least some cool content. But the thing is, is not everything needs to be used, right? I think it's okay when you're exploring saturation is you find, like, you know whoa, I can zoom out to where everything's the size of one pixel. That's kind of cool. That's a saturation thing, your camera zoom level. Like, I can zoom all the way in to where you can't see anything. Yeah, maybe you don't need those. You can zoom in and out. You can zoom in, you know, to like, to, to oh, look at this door. You could zoom out to be like, oh, look at this, look at all these pretty graphics I made. But you maybe don't, you know, have to use it all the time. You maybe don't have to be all the way zoomed in. So that's just one example. Not everything needs to be used, but I'll say this. I think it's good to know about those things that are out there, right? So if you're working on a game and you haven't done this where you kind of go through the practice of saturating it, do it. Check it out. Like on graph paper, write out, write out all your features, write out all of your like content capabilities, what your enemies can do and, and what your puzzles are capable of or whatever. Create a little spreadsheet or something and see, you know, put an X like, okay, it does this. And then like, oh, it doesn't do this. Or like, hey, here's a number, which is, you know, how, how high this monster jumps. Has that been a two yet? Has that been doubled, tripled? Has it been removed? You know, that, those kinds of things. Um, I think that they will help you. I think saturation will reveal some cool stuff about your games. That is it for this episode. You are being played out by Monster Stomp. 
Okay, I want to talk about this a little bit real quick. You may have noticed um, I'm I'm putting songs at the ends of these episodes that you can use. Again, with the trying to deliver you real game dev value. Get it. Get that value. Um, you can use this song in your game, in your project, or whatever. This is a, kind of a practice, too. So, in my book, How to Make a Video Game All By Yourself, look at that. Look at that effortless, effortless marketing. Isn't it, isn't it great? Um, in my book, I talk about um, licenses, especially Creative Commons licenses. And, you know, I'm an advocate of making your own stuff. I like making my own graphics for my games. But, you know, doing everything is just too much, right? So, part of this kind of creating this music, um, not creating creating this podcast and having this music at the end is going to be a practice for me too and I'll share um, my experiences with you but the public domain and creative Commons stuff is a little interesting because you have to adhere to the license um, I'll link to this license and you should check it out um, I'll link to it because I want to but also because I have to so check this out um, the licensor cannot revoke these freedoms as long as you follow the license terms right so you get so much good value out of using um, a public domain or an available song, but you also have to be careful. It can, it can burn you. You know, if I didn't follow these licensor agreements, I could get an email in a month or two that's like, hey, you got to take your podcast down, or you have to spend a bunch of your time, like, say goodbye to your afternoon. You have to edit this, or it's going to get taken down, taken down by tomorrow. That's kind of worst case scenario, right? But I'm just saying, like, if you make something yourself and put it out there, you only have to worry about yourself. But if you use someone else's stuff, you, um, you need to be respectful. Um, so I'll put my learnings here. I'm, I'm fairly new to using um, these assets myself. So, you know, if I need to edit an episode or if I did a license uh, incorrectly or something, you'll be the first to know. But uh, I think it's pretty cool that, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this song and you're digging it and you keep listening after the show, throw it in your game, whatever, right? Um, for this one, I need to say it's from uh, Techno Axe's royalty-free music. And I need to tell you it's been adapted a little bit um, and not, not every license lets you do this, so look out for that. But um, I'm going to fade it in and out, probably. And I'm probably going to talk over it a little bit. And, you know, those are things to, to be aware of, is that technically, that's kind of a remix or a transformation, you know, because sometimes you, it has to be, no, you know, this recording as intended, just like this, and no other, you know, usage is acceptable. So, anyway, that one's more long-winded than most of the uh, you're getting played out is going to be. But um, my goal is for the at the end of every episode to have a song you can use. And maybe you have to, you know, include a few words in your project or something to let you do that. But um, I think that's pretty cool. I love music and I love um, creativity and using stuff in your projects. And, and why not, man? So anyway, uh, that's it. I hope this episode was a little bit less stiff. hope it was more natural. I love these cue cards. If that works, um, I might keep doing this. Um, and yeah, future episodes are coming. So be sure to subscribe and all that jazz. Um, now it's time for you to go make the game.
always sit and I'm trying to stand and I'm throwing myself the curveball. Don't too don't do too much. Do less. <laughs> <laughs>